Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. By most standards, I've changed jobs quite a bit because I'm a big believer that changing roles and working with different people is important for career progression and personal growth. But what are the signs you should change your job and how do you measure the risk of leaving versus staying? Today's guest is someone I've admired since he was in his early 20s when he was appointed editor-in-chief of The Monthly magazine. Ben has a bachelor's degree in English, a law degree and a master of science in technology management from Columbia University. He has continued to reinvent himself, effortlessly changing jobs to keep up with the digital evolution. For example, he moved from long-form journalism to digital marketing and back to content where he worked at Audible before a move into marketing at the fitness company Sweat. So, who better to ask than Ben about how and when to change jobs, leading from a young age and why startups are exciting but not the right environment for everyone? Welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series, Ben Napastek. Thanks, Helen. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. You became editor of The Monthly, and I think you're only 23, is that right? That's right. And at the time, did you think you were ready to lead a team? Look, I I think I had the naive confidence of, of youth that probably propelled me forward and made me more confident than I perhaps should have been, given that there was obviously so much that I didn't know about. But I had a wonderful boss. I had Maurice Schwartz, who was just such an inspiring leader for me because he always had my back and he was very available. He was very present. We would speak most days, but he would also leave the decisions up to me to make. I was never there thinking, if I do this, what will Maurice say? He would know that if I was unsure about something, I would, you know, I would use him as a sounding board, but ultimately the decision was mine. And then the mistake was mine to make as well in, in some cases too. But having a manager who really has your back and is is available, approachable, but not micromanaging is something that I just learned so much about leadership that I didn't know at the time and that in turn informed how I led my team there. And I think that underscores a, a really important point around leadership is that you do set the tone of the management culture from the top. If you're leading in a particular way, the chances are your direct report's going to be leading in a particular way as well. So Never as a, as a leader, particularly a senior leader, take for granted just how impactful small nuances of personal style will have on the overall organisational culture and how the organisation is, is managed and run. I think that's incredibly true. What do you think he saw in you at that time? I think he saw in me someone who was resourceful and could get things done, which as a, as a startup he needed. Uh, I mean, I had while at uni, interviewed probably more than 100 of the world's leading intellectuals and political thinkers. And I'd been 
publishing essays and, and long-form journalism for publications like the Financial Times. And he saw that I was someone who just made things happen. And I think that entrepreneurial spirit really appealed to him. But he was also very... He was very interested in the vision I had for the magazine when I met with him and I said, look, this is a magazine that is always going to be a niche publication and that's its strength. It knows who it's speaking to, it knows what it is and what it isn't and if it goes too mainstream, it's going to lose what it's about. You know, that was always got to be very, very key to what The Monthly was about but there was a scope to go wider than they than they were and, and really make the magazine more unpredictable a little bit more, in the best possible sense of the term, um, pugnacious in order to make it more relevant and more part of the daily news agenda and cultural conversation. And by doing that, we'd be able to take a, a small-scale you know, niche magazine that had been stereotyped as the you know, Bible for the Melbourne latte-sipping chattering class and make it something that was essential reading for Australians interested in being at the forefront of cultural debate. And that's what I that's what I delivered on and that's what I was really proud of while I was there. But I think he bought my energy and my um my entrepreneurialism, but he also bought my vision and confidence in what I could do with the magazine. Your interest in startups and entrepreneurialism is a hallmark of your career to date. And I'll come back to that. But I'm interested to know what sort of leader were you at that age? I wasn't the leader that I am today. I think leadership is difficult and you learn from mistakes. You know, I was someone who probably made the mistake then of thinking that if I thought a particular way, others would as well and probably wasn't quite as cognizant as I needed to be of the fact that lots of people, everyone has different styles and different motivations and different different drivers. For some people, it's about building a career and learning new things. For some people, they come into work because, I mean, they want the flexibility. They want to be able to work um, in their own time because they're juggling, you know, sick parents and, and young kids. For other people, money is really important. Um, and other people just want, want recognition for doing good work. And some people just want to do the good work without the embarrassment of being recognised for it. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of different levers you need to pull as a leader in order to get the most out of your teams, but you can't just take a one-size-fits-all approach or presume that everyone is going to respond to the same thing because, you know, much though it always comes from a good place when someone wants to, you know, scream about a staff member's achievements from the, you know, podium at a, at a proverbial town hall meeting. For some people who are more introverted, that might be their definition of hell. So really just getting to know the individuals, what makes them tick, how you can help them, I think is just the key to leadership. And it did probably take me some time and frankly, some mistakes to really finesse that very versatile and adaptable style. That takes a lot of time, Ben. And mistakes. You know, you learn from mistakes. I was always very good at this. It's one thing that I that I didn't have to learn that was instilled in me from my parents, which is that, you know, you have to be self-aware. You have to be open to criticism and critique and you're never as good or right as you think you are. I mean, my parents are both psychiatrists and their whole practice is built around the idea that people often act against their self-interest, that people's conscious reasons for doing things and often not the primary driver or at least not the full picture. And I think that background really put me in good stead professionally so that when I did make a mistake, I was able then to, to look self-critically at it and to take feedback on board and then not make that mistake again. And in my more recent iterations of my career where I've been really focusing on growth strategy, the whole premise of growth strategy as a discipline, if you like, that emerged from the tech startup scene but is now increasingly embedded in big institutions is that you learn a lot more from shipping experiments 
the test hypotheses where you get data that you can learn from in order to then build on those insights to launch other experiments. And you know, even if you're wrong with your hypothesis, at least every step of the way, you're gathering data that then gets you closer to your end goal, that that's a much more effective way of approaching growing a business than you know, spending six months planning one big campaign where you do huge amounts of research and then treat the central piece of creative as a perfectly polished jewel and then launch it. And if it doesn't work, you don't get a second chance. The whole premise of making mistakes and learning from them is so critical to business, but it's also so critical to leadership as well. And I think that is what I had in spades from the get-go, which allowed me to make mistakes as a as a young leader, but not or, or very, very rarely make them for a second time. Did you go home to your parents and actually seek professional insights from them? Uh, I definitely wouldn't say professional uh, insights, <laughs> but um, and I was close to my to my parents and I, I, I still am. And they always instilled in me a, you know, probably also, also Jewish as well as a psychoanalytic tradition of looking at a problem from many possible angles, not just taking received wisdom at face value. And that, you know, that's been the beauty behind the explosion of growth as a discipline as well, because it shows that people, brands understand typically much less about their customers than they think they do. Because traditionally, with a brand marketing approach to marketing, say, companies might, if they've got deep pockets commission, you know, vast amounts of customer research, but consumers by and large aren't rational in the sense that how they act doesn't often align with how they say they will act in a particular situation or how they say they will purchase in a particular scenario. So you really need to ship those experiments, test things um, in order to get the data points to really get close to your customer rather than looking at a, you know, looking at a report from a market research firm that says you know, X number of women want this in a fitness app. That's the received wisdom but you always got to be sceptical. You always got to, um, you know, go to the data and make sure that you're shipping those experiments to gather the data that you need to move forward based on, you know, actual observable customer behaviour. But you really need to dig below the surface. And that's what, you know, that's what my parents taught me. And that understanding that I was, you know, I always had the confidence that I was going to do a really good job at whatever I put my mind to, but never the overconfidence of thinking that I wouldn't make mistakes along the way. And that ability to kind of turn inwards, analyse my own behaviour and how I played a role in an outcome that I wasn't, wasn't necessarily happy with has allowed me to constantly grow as a leader and, um, and like I say before, not or very rarely make the same mistake more than once. And this is a tough question to ask you without notice, but is there any particular anecdote or set of circumstances you can share that illustrates that? Because what you're talking about is a fairly sophisticated approach to leadership. One thing that comes to mind is when I joined Fairfax, it was a really exciting opportunity when Gary Linnell approached me from the monthly and said, hey, we want you to, to make the impact with the good weekend that you have with the monthly, so come on board. And I remember the first meeting I had with uh, the then CEO, Greg Highwood, and he was like, mate, this is a tough time for us. You know, revenues are declining. Good weekend is, in its heyday, was, was bringing in about 50 million in, in advertising revenue per year, but that was no longer. And he's like, mate, there are no rules anymore. You've got to just tear up the rule book and not just take things based on how things have worked in the past because they're not working for us anymore. What, what got us here will not get us there. And that was a really empowering, memorable conversation that I'll never forget. But in implementing that or rather acting on that advice, I probably missed a beat with the importance of, of taking people on the journey with you. So to give you one example, when I was at Fairfax, there was a 
a very, very rigorous division between editorial and commercial church and state. And when I joined, the GM of magazines had, had just been made redundant. So most of those commercial responsibilities fell onto me. And so I was really focused on um, engaging with partners, with clients, with advertisers in a much more proactive and collaborative way than had been the case in the past and looking at sponsored content executions, looking at giving brands the opportunity to sponsor uh, themes for individual issues in such a way that we were always going to be very transparent to readers when something was paid for and when it wasn't. This was still uncharted territory then. Now it's commonplace, even in publications as, you know, August is the New York Times. But then it was very controversial and there was a lot of resistance to it. And what I realised in retrospect is I needed to have taken a lot more time to get people to buy into what I was doing, the reason that I was doing it. The fact that I had Greg Highwoods and my bosses, um, Gary Linnells and the editor-in-chief's backing wasn't enough. You know, it's enough to like, literally enable you to empower you as a, as a leader to do something, but I missed the most important part of that consultation process, which was really setting out the strategy and preempting all the questions people will have and consulting very widely. And I, I did all of that, but a bit after the fact. And, you know, people did come on board once they realised that we were totally aligned in our mission of coming up with sustainable models for the future of long-form journalism at Fairfax. But I would have had to do a lot less explaining if I'd brought more people along on the journey before. So that was a real lesson for me in the importance of, you know, leading through influence rather than authority, but also sometimes taking the time, even if I'm the kind of impatient person who wants everything to happen yesterday, but really taking the time to make people understand and feel listened to and feel bought into to what you're planning on doing. Let's jump ahead and look at your progression since your early media days, because you have done a whole range of different jobs since then. One of the things I really want to explore with you is knowing when to go. Many people listening to this podcast will be wondering today whether they should quit their job and whether they should take the risk. So I'm interested to hear from you about how you made the decision to go from the monthly to the good weekend and then you went into PR and then you went into marketing in in a completely different role with Kayla Itzdeen's Sweat. So if you don't mind starting with your thinking around leaving a great job that you're excelling in, what makes you decide to go? So one, one quite facile answer to that is that sometimes you just have the opportunity and it's not the perfect time, but you realise that it's not an opportunity that's going to come around every day, so you need to take it. I mean, I wasn't ready to leave the monthly yet when Good Weekends approached me. I wasn't planning on leaving Amazon when, when Sweat approached me either, but they were really great opportunities, and so I took them. But going a bit deeper than that, because whether or not you're approached or proactively looking, you're still going to make the decision to stay or go. I think thinking about where you want to be five or six years ahead be 10 or 15 years ahead, but I find it very hard to, to think that far ahead, particularly given how quickly the, the digital world changes. Um, but thinking that far ahead and thinking, what do I need to get there? And if you're in a position where you've learned everything that you can, you've maxed out the impact that you can have on, or rather the unique impact that you as opposed to someone else can have on the organisation in that role, and there are gaps that you know you're going to need to fill but you're not going to be able to fill in that role to get where you need to be in five years, then I think that's a pretty good sign that's time to go. And that's been the broad framework that I've used 
to make the decisions that I have. I mean, I've always been really focused on how do I build sustainable revenue streams for consumer brands through solving problems for customers. So being drawn to brands where, yes, the objective is to grow revenue, but companies that understand you only do that through addressing real needs and and providing a great experience for audiences or, or customers. And so I needed, in order to be able to take on influential uh, general management style marketing leadership roles in consumer digital companies, I knew that I needed a lot more than just an editorial background. I mean, some people come to those roles through a straight sales background. Some people come to those roles through a finance background. I had neither. So I needed to very strategically work to develop the breadth of functional understanding, not necessarily expertise, because I'm not an expert in everything I I manage and a leader shouldn't be, we can get to that. But I've made very clear that every role I take plays to my strengths. There's enough in what I've done before for me to leverage and know that I'll have a big impact, but there's also elements that are new there. Uh, When I went to SBS, for example, from Fairfax, I was leading tech teams for the first time. Um, And then when I went to Edelman, that was the first role where I was directly responsible for um, an end-to-end P&L and, and a sales function. And then when I left Amazon for Sweat, uh, I mean, it was an incredible opportunity to head up a global end-to-end marketing function with a, a really sizable budget. This was a you know, $100 million, um, a year revenue organization that had just been acquired by a then $8 billion fitness hardware organization in the US, iFit, with a real intention to drive further growth. So it was a really good opportunity for me to take that global head of marketing, end-to-end, you know, acquisition-focused remit. But it wasn't the ideal time to go because I was having a great time at Audible with, with Amazon and we were really kicking goals there as well. You know, I learned more in that year than I probably have in any of my other years professionally. You know, so even though it was leaving the, I guess, security and comfort of a job at Amazon that was you know, stacked with equity and where a lot of people would just want to stay for many, many years, um, I recognise that the learning and, and confidence that I would get from being able to take on a role like I did at Sweat with that level of responsibility and accountability for, you know, the full full marketing stack would be an opportunity that I couldn't refuse. But what about in the case where you've joined a big company, you've taken a big job and you've only been at that company for two years and you're about to go from Audible to Sweat it's your dream job. Do you sit back and go, but I haven't been here two years. I'm worried about it. It looks bad on my resume. I I do. And I mean, the resume is a a sort of secondary thing. You can always, you can always explain your resume, but what is going through my mind is, do I really need to stay for another, another year? Because I've built a fantastic team around me. I've, I've done the hard work of getting the buy-in to the strategy and getting it resourced and, and making it work and, and building the audience and the business model. So if I've got things in a really good place where the operation can work without me, then I don't need to be there. And that's, uh, that's for me, the mark of a, a really successful stint when you can, uh, you know, figuratively, not, not literally here, but make yourself redundant when... Uh, another opportunity arises because you've got that great team around you and um, you know, everyone is bought into the, the strategy and plan. Some quick practical questions. How do you have those conversations? Someone's gone and headhunted you in. You're the, the boy wonder who's kicking goals, whether it be at Audible or a Good Weekend or at Edelman. 
And then you walk in the door a couple of years later and say, I've got an even better opportunity and I'm going. How do you manage those conversations and how badly have they gone for you? Not badly at all. And I would say that if if you're a good manager, it shouldn't usually be a surprise if someone is is going to leave. Because even if they're not actively looking, if you've really got to know their career aspirations and what makes them tick, and if they're good and if they're, you know, particularly if they're publicly visible, they will get approaches. And if they get an approach by someone who's able to give them an opportunity that you're just not able to do, and if you were able to do it, you would have done it before because you knew it aligned with their aspirations, um, you know that they'll go. So a lot of leaders will disagree with me here, but um, I'm not of the view that necessarily staff retention metrics are always the best ones. I think overall, if you've got a high churn rate, it's usually a really bad sign. But equally, if you've got really talented people that have been with you for a long time, often the best thing that you can do as a, as a manager is help set them up for success in the, in the next role, you know, and know that the organisation will benefit from, you know, everything that they've delivered while they've been here and that they've set the function and set the organisation up for success for their, for their successor. So, no, the, the, the conversations have always gone really well. I mean, I was very nervous about telling um, Leanne, the wonderful APAC head for Audible, who's a really close mentor of mine, that um, I was thinking of going. I, I hadn't signed the contract yet, <laughs> but uh, couldn't quite tell her that my mind was made up. And she said, go for it, Ben. It's, it's such a good opportunity because I know what you're what you're looking to do and opportunities here will come up, but there's nothing guaranteed and there's nothing right now. So go take it. And she was hugely supportive and, you know, I chat to her every every month since. So, no, the conversations go really well. I'm not of the view that you know, Reed Hastings is obviously a you know, brilliant, brilliant CEO, but one thing that I do take exception to, uh, this is the CEO of, or former now CEO of Netflix, is his view that if someone on your team leaves or says they're going to leave and you wouldn't fight really hard to keep them, you should make them redundant now. And I really take exception to that because I think that if someone wants to leave the organisation and if someone gets a great opportunity to leave an organisation based on, you know, how you've helped um, them blossom and grow as a you know, as a leader or individual contributor on your on your team, that's the best compliment you can get as a leader. And it's just not going to be in, in everyone's interest to stay in, in their existing role f- for longer than they want to because there's so much to be learnt from different organisations, different experiences, and uh, companies are just, particularly at more senior levels, are not always in a position to, you know, give people the ideal role that they want right now. So, Do you feel the same when someone comes to you? When your star hire says, Ben, I'm going? Uh, look, if it's three months in, I wouldn't be too happy about it. <laughs> but um, no, no. But even, even then, if it's clear that the alignment's not there and there was something that I potentially turned a blind eye to in the, in the hiring process, then I would be very encouraging of that. But Ultimately, people need to be loyal to people, not companies now, because even so-called cushy jobs, as we've seen with all of the tech layoffs now, like no job is for life. Companies will will look after you to a point, but the corporation is not going to remember your contributions. The people will. And those relationships don't need to end when someone leaves an organisation either. I mean, I'm still in touch with most of my bosses and I've had lots of lots of people who have worked for me who have, who have stayed in touch as well. And those relationships continue. It's not, you know, it's not breaking up, so to speak. I'll always be very loyal to those people. 
but I, I and I tell my my team I expect them to ultimately like advocate for themselves and do what's right for them as opposed to you know feeling like they need to to pretend to be loyal to the company. You know, I actually encourage people to I say to them, look, if if you're looking for roles, talk to me about them. Like I'll be a sounding board. Like make me part of that process. I'll I'll keep your confidence. I'll if I see opportunities for. You know, us to offer you something similar, I will, but don't be afraid of having those sort of um, candid career conversations with me. And I, I'd be lying if I said a lot of my staff have those conversations with me, but people, people do, and um, I'm always extremely supportive. The other thing I just wanted a quick understanding from you about is applying for a job that you're not 100% suited for. Uh, and this is something I also recognise in myself, a preparedness to kind of go and have a shot at a job that may not necessarily be particularly qualified for. Tell me about your mindset when you, you've you had a content job, but suddenly you're in the chief marketing role. The first thing I would say is that if you're a business leader first and a functional leader second, uh, which I think at particularly at senior levels you should be, those skills tend to be pretty transferable. I mean, think about it from the customer's point of view. They don't see all these different functions. They just have a single customer experience. So regardless of the role you're in, you should be advocating for the customer experience and driving, you know, and driving business outcomes. But I would also say that, I mean, yeah, every role I've taken, it's been important to me that it does push me outside my comfort zone to some extent. Because I think if I've done all parts of the role before, I think I'm overqualified for it. And sometimes I've even said this to recruiters. I'm like, well... I don't tick these boxes, but if I did, I wouldn't want to be having this conversation today because, you know, I'm here to learn. And when I'm hiring, I certainly look for people who have a baseline of experience, yes, who are able to articulate how that experience applies even laterally to what I'm looking for them to do, but they're hungry. They're keen to make an impact because that's not coachable. You can coach people skills. You can put them through a Google AdWords course, but you you know, you can't teach someone to have a growth mindset or to, or, to, or to be ambitious. So that's certainly something that I look at. But the other thing, I was touching on this a bit before when I was talking about how we're not, growth teaches you that you're often wrong and or at least often not as right as you think you are, is that um, if you go into a role thinking you know the customers, thinking you know the discipline, it's really, really dangerous because you need to constantly be taking a, a deliberately naive view in order to really not be blind to what the, the customer data is telling you. So to give you a couple of examples, one category of error I've, I've seen a bit is where you look at your fans, right, who are speaking to you on social, who are engaging with your community, but their preferences often do not, in fact, I would say almost invariably, don't align with the majority of your customers who are less engaged and, you know, are not super fans. But the vocal minority can can often distort a business's thinking about its customers um, because they're the comments that come through customer support, who respond to, to surveys, who, you know, who are there visibly interacting on social media platforms. So you need to go in there with a sense of, okay, I've got these good data points, but I actually don't know my customer, and I've got to constantly be testing in order to see how do they actually behave when I put this messaging in front of them, or if I segment the targeting in a different way, will these people who I actually thought would 
by a product or be receptive to what I'm talking to? Are they actually the people who will, you know, transact in this moment on this channel? So I think having, um, being inside your comfort zone, I, th- I think is important, but it's also integral to just a, a modern way of growing through testing, learning and iterating on, on the data you're seeing because we never have a full enough view of the, of the customer. The customers are changing, channels are changing, the competitive landscape is changing and we constantly, you know, we constantly need to be learning, relearning, experimenting, experimenting again because the biggest risk in business is not to take risks. If you're, if you're standing still, you're almost certainly falling behind. What's your experience been with recruiters in that sense? And in my mind, I'm thinking of anyone who's listening to this podcast who is thinking about changing careers or likes changing careers a lot and is talking to recruiters and finding that conversation frustrating. What's your advice and your experience in that space? Uh, Don't give up because the conversation will be frustrating and you'll need to have have a lot of them. But also to, to just show that and demonstrate that hunger and not just not just talk to it, but demonstrate it in the fact that you've read the company's annual report or you've got tangible ideas for how they can improve the customer experience or how in the past you have been handed some responsibility where you're totally outside of your comfort zone and have had to bone up on an area post-haste and, and smash it out of the ballpark. So to definitely speak to your, to your hunger and your desire to learn, but speaking is not enough. You need to, to, to bring that to life through examples and through demonstrating the work that you've done to, to you know, understand that the, the company, help them visualise um, what you'd actually be doing in the role. One of the things that you are also is a legally trained dealmaker. Ben, what does that even mean? Give me an example. <laughs> Look, I think legal training is um, really valuable for helping to, to break down complex problems into their component parts such that they're solvable. So it's not really, it's not useful to take a discussion around revenue and be like, okay, revenue is down. What do we do about it? Like you break it down into all different parts of what in you know, marketing lingo would we call a customer, customer funnel, you know, is it awareness? Is it acquisition? Is it activation? Is it retention referral or revenue in the sense of the amount the customers are actually spending? Where, which area of this problem, is, um, of this journey is broken and having the biggest downstream impact on on revenue. And so then you can identify through the data actually what you should be, you know, what you should be looking at and form hypotheses to to try and address them. In terms of deal making, that's very much entertainment uh, industry lingo that was used in Audible and the film world. It's, it's I think it's probably a, fan, uh, a slightly more colourful way of describing business affairs, which is the other term that's often used to describe people that work on partnerships through contracts and and negotiations. But I think that being able to go into those conversations and not take an adversarial approach, but think of really understand the person across the table from you, really understand what their drivers are, and then being able to show what value you can bring to the table beyond just dollars or beyond what they think they're just after is just so, so valuable. Um, so to give you the example of Audible, when when we were launching Audible Originals as a brand in the Australian New Zealand marketplaces, no one knew that Audible was a platform for original content creation. No one in the film and TV world had thought about going to Audible with 
an idea for a multi-series scripted drama that they could turn into a, a visual production down the track. And so we really needed to go out and sell that vision to them. But we were offering, I mean, we were offering budgets that were peanuts compared to the kind of money that, that they're used to in film and TV. You know, we didn't have an advertising model. This was all very embryonic for us then. And so we really had to sell to them what what we could do for them that wasn't financial purely. So giving them that opportunity to develop IP, if their their dream had always been to, to write a TV series, we'll be like, okay, we can write it and actually make it in audio first. For some Australian celebrities, they never cracked internationally and we're like, okay, well, we're not going to be able to offer you as much money as Netflix here, but we can break you internationally. We can um, get you that US audience, which you can then then leverage to get a US talent agent. So really taking that empathetic approach to deal-making, I think, is in a way not a world apart from what you need to do as a good leader in understanding the inner motivations that are not necessarily the first thing an agent comes out, which, which, which is how much money you're going to pay, um, but really understanding the other motivations and levers that you can drive to you know, bring a deal to fruition. That was something I learned on Women's Weekly, and this is where you and I first met, was when I was editor-in-chief of Women's Weekly and you were editor-in-chief of Good Weekend, and I would be able to sell the dream of not just a story, but actually beautiful photographs. So, and I hated you because even though we could do beautiful <laughs> photographs, we didn't have beautiful paper. That's so right. So never looked as good. <laughs> That's right. So I and would, we didn't airbrush. <laughs> no, I didn't do a lot of airbrushing either, if I remember rightly. Um, I think I took a whole stand on that. But um, that—that's right. You could say to you could say to someone, you know, we will do beautiful photos, and then you can have them forever, which was something that the many other media outlets couldn't do. Ben, what sort of what sort of leader are you? How would you describe yourself? I'm someone who. Who's, who's very focused on people in the sense of getting to know them as individuals, not taking a broad brush approach to, to leadership and uh, you know, getting to know their individual motivations and drivers. So are they someone who values flexibility first and foremost? Are they someone who's here to learn and develop their career first and foremost? Or are they someone who just wants to, to do good and get recognised for it or just do good work and not get <laughs> recognised it if they're more of a shrinking, shrinking violet type, which is fine. So really understanding the individual Figuring out what makes them tick, I think, is really, you know, really, really key. But I also think the part of leadership that's often overlooked is actually your leadership across the organisation with peers as well. Because leaders can really fall down when they develop close bonds with their team, but then lack the influence with their cross-functional peers to, you know, ultimately get the team the resources they need or advocate for their team effectively and in times of, of trouble. So I think being someone who is very good at influencing and getting enough understanding of the different functions that you need to bring any cross-functional work to life is really important. And indeed, good cross-functional influencer. And being a business leader first before being a functional leader, I think is really important for that credibility because then if you ask for budget, people don't just think it's the default position because you're advocating for your team or you're you know, building your empire, but being willing to make some hard decisions in the interest of the wider business and constantly show how your initiatives um, ladder up to the business objectives, I think is a really key part of, of leadership too. So I don't actually think that you take a very different approach to, you know, leading with your peers as, as you should with your direct reports. Obviously, with your direct reports, you've got some some more concrete responsibilities in terms of process, but you need to be a great influencer. You need to be able to inspire, get people bought into your vision and 
you know, constantly show how that you're good at prioritizing and good at asking those challenging questions that, you know, allow you to co-create with your with your teams and with your peers that the strategy that will best deliver on what whatever the business's North Star is. Five years from now, where are you gonna be? <laughs> Hopefully in a very, very similar place that I am am now, um, working with really exciting consumer brands to grow members, to grow subscribers, and to constantly be innovating and working with really smart people. I, I just so much get off on um, the learning, the conversations, the rapport you build with people who see things differently to you. H- having diverse environments is so important uh, for, for work, and that doesn't just mean race, gender, you know, religion, ethnicity, whatever. It, it's about having people from different functions, different backgrounds, different ways of, of seeing the world that allow you to challenge each other. And the more you challenge each other, the closer you come to delivering that, you know, that optimal customer experience, which uh, you're never going to attain because you can always be better. But, um, you know, the more, more debates and, and arguments and, you know, angles you can, you can look at the data from, the closer you are to, to getting there. I always love talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. That was a great chat. I can't help thinking why you're not working with me on Future Women. Do you know the answer to that? <laughs> well, you can always ask me, Helen. <laughs> Thanks so much. Lovely. Great. Really lovely to chat as ever. Great to, great to have you. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.